This is Jacob. And this is Best Worst Podcast. Nine. Jeez. Yeah, so we're recording this uh, about ten hours after our last installment, yep. which is unlikely to be top land speed record between <laughs> installments, but we did intend to do it as one. But um, but yeah, we got a bit excited, and, uh, yeah. as we often do. Because I, th- I feel like the idea, in retrospect, that we could encapsulate 24 films between us and cover the stories of our entire life in an hour, <laughs> even for like less rambly people, is probably a bit ambitious. Yeah. But um, yeah, and we're on to the scotch now, so the Aaron Malt single uh, malt scotch whiskey. So those of you that... Um, uh, drink along with drink us. Along can, uh, yeah, in, enjoy uh, your own libation yeah. and uh, pop some corks. This um, is Sauternes cask. It's uh, very nice. I think it's, it's cask strength, I think. 50%. I say, uh, let's take mm. a look. Um, it is 50%. All right. Let's not talk about the scotch. Let's yeah. talk about films. Yeah, okay. Um, How about you kick off? Do you want me to kick yeah, off? Yeah, yeah. Even, okay, I feel a little guilty because I did the last three, but I'm happy to keep going for uh, at least this next one because I'm still... Um, this is still in this era after university oh, okay, yeah. where um, uh, I'm getting into films. Yeah. And, but, of course, in 1998, when you read a list of 100, you sight and sound 100 great films, yeah. you like go to the video store and they have like nine of them. And maybe you go to the really obscure video store and they have 18. And there's others yeah. that you know have never been available on video yeah. ever. And that's most of them. And maybe one or two like, you know, come to a cinematography. And so like... There's whole frontiers of cinema that just aren't available to you. Yeah. And so and particularly back then, like yeah, I, I think. And it, I was in Houston, Texas, so oh, I can only imagine what yeah, like yeah. Auckland, New Zealand was. You know, well, like we, at the video I mean, we store. We were too bad. Like we had, we were, we've been served mm. pretty well with places like Videon, who yeah. um, had a great sort of um, import selection on VH, VHS and then DVD for for a long time. Yeah. But in small centres or away from, if you didn't know about Videon, you know, you were just the luck of the draw on what your local. Yeah. Video store, and we had a place. Movie World and Newmarketers actually was really good as well in terms of okay. range. But there was a there was a I think there was a time somewhere in the mid O's where distribution of DVDs suddenly got a whole lot better, and you could suddenly get a bunch of stuff that you never did. Because I started um, collecting Tarkovsky DVDs at one right, point, yeah. um, and they it was super hard to track down for a while there, and um, from in the local market. And I would occasionally find something at Real Groovy. I'd occasionally find something somewhere else. And I'd pick it up, and so, yeah, yeah it's how I met uh, our friend David Larson, because uh, online he needed a copy of, I think it was um, Stalker or The Mirror, that he was writing uh, an article about, a uh, review of, or, right. or a book about, um, okay. and, and I was the only person that had a copy <laughs> sitting around at <laughs> in the entire, yeah. yeah. Um, so, this is still before DVD, yeah. so this is 1997, I think, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think DVD came out in 98 or something, yeah, I know yeah. that I got mine in the end of 98. So finally, like, I've been hearing sort of about avant-garde cinema, mm. and, like, I had no real idea what mm. that was. And then one day I went to this obscure video store, and I found this film by Stan Breckage called oh. Dog Starman. Uh, and I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, um, but I'm just like, okay, you know, I'll take a look at this. Mm. And um, it blew my mind. I mean, um, I've talked a lot about Breckage over time, but, I mean, Dog Starman 
is probably his magnum, one of his magnum opuses anyway. It's a four-part <laughs> feature yeah. um, that uh, uses a lot of live action along with other techniques okay. um, as opposed to some of his later films, which are the only, the hand-drawn abstract images. Yeah. And it has, you know, this man climbing up a hill. And so there's, as avant-garde goes, there's still a, maybe a bit more of a way into it yeah. than um, some more extreme stuff. But it is still pretty unsparing in, in a lot of ways. Mm. But, um, you know, in my time at the radio station, I'd started discovering a lot of avant-garde music and really yeah. extreme, you know, free jazz yeah. and you know, twenty late 20th century classical and um, noise and all this stuff. Mm. And up till then, you know, it was kind of like film was still, or yeah, film was still kind of the equivalent of what you could get at your local music land or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Or what, Marbex, I guess it would yeah, be. Yeah. yeah. And then, and so, and that was just like the door opening of like, oh my gosh, there's so much more than, you know, I mean, stuff like Persona or Walkabout would have been kind mm. of the edge of yeah. what... Yeah, I had seen, which is still, you know, fundamentally really narrative cinema with experimental flourishes. So yeah, and that just blew my brain open. And I think to this day, I'm still somebody who kind of wants to do what Stan Brakhage does, but doesn't have the guts to even try <laughs> because he did it for so long and so well. And his um, purity of, you know, pursuing his art, no matter mm. what, has just been this constant uh, inspiration. And in fact, I looked at, it was probably the first time I thought about going to film school quite seriously and I looked oh, into wow. going to the University of Colorado Boulder where at that time he was still alive and still teaching but I would mm. have had to I already had a bachelor's of art in philosophy but mm. I would have had to get another BA in film to oh, then okay. yep. get into the master's course and it wouldn't have taken four full years but it, it was just one of those like yeah oh I, I don't really know and and I let the opportunity slide by oh, along with other opportunities to go up to uh Portland and start a company with some friends. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th that impact of brackage and that mm. weight over that. And, you know, I mean, I've had that experience with multiple of his films that, you know, I could have easily put here as well. His um, Black Ice was the first hand-painted animation yeah. when I saw, and that was one of those. Like, I, I found a videotape when I moved to Portland of, like, nine of his later animated oh, wow. films. And I saw that one and I just immediately rewound it. There were things that I had never seen in cinema before that yeah. just I, blew my mind. And then later his Chinese series, which I've always talked about, so I'm sure I've talked about it on here, but where he um, did his last film on his deathbed with his fingernails uh, yeah. and yeah. scratched the emulsion. And, and the, just that kind of commitment is staggering and it's kind of that sense of if cinema is a church and you treat it as your religion it's mm. like that's one of those figures that yeah really fits in that and it fits in with people like that in music like john cage and yeah. things like that who are really pushing the parameters that were heroes to me yeah on that side of things wow. so that's my number seven what's yours <clears throat> mine is a little more straightforward i guess but um no less um strange just not avant-garde in that respect um it was um a film that had a massive impact on me and i've definitely talked about it it's mm -hmm. the beaver trilogy and that will be the first and last time anyone has called that film straightforward, but <laughs> yeah. for the record. Which was by a, a chap called Trent Harris, um, mm. and he pulled it together in 2000, and it came to uh, NZIFF. It was either 2000 or 2001. I think it actually came here in 2000. Maybe he pulled it together in 99. No, I think it was 2000. So um, real quick, quick with that, with yeah. um, 
because you saw Cook the Thief, his wife, yeah, in New Zealand, in yeah. Auckland, yeah, and you were going to the capital. Yeah. So were you going to the film festival then as well? Uh, was, or no, was actually, that kind of a thing um, that was going on that you didn't pay attention to? The, I, at high school, I didn't really know anything about it, um, and then I can't remember if John was a um, a festival guy, um, the guy who took me to um, Cook the Thief and a yeah, few yeah. others. He he probably was somewhat aware, and maybe went to a couple, but he wasn't a big festival head. Mm. Um, but when I started going to university, I had some friends, and Melissa and I actually used to go to um, the old festival film here and there, but we weren't yeah. sort of committed going to a big run of things until kind of the late 90s. Right. Okay. And so, so you're a regular festival goer at yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I started regularly going in the late 90s, and so by this point. And this was a film that I loved the kind of bizarre, I couldn't quite get what it was about from the write-up and so um i stumbled into it with my friend nige and we were just floored and there was virtually no one there during the day and we're like oh yeah (laughs) and it's essentially three short films by um this guy trent harris who at that stage when he started the first part of it was uh in the late 70s was working at a television station in, in utah and he was testing out a new video camera and he was in the car park just sort of had testing the footage and some a young guy from a small town called um beaver hence yeah. the beaver trilogy had uh come up because he wanted to see the tv station and meet some people and take some photos and and he was a bit of a um extrovert so um trent said oh i'm just testing this camera out you want to get on and he goes oh yeah i do impersonation so he, he did a few impersonations for the camera and they were Fine, yeah. <laughs> as a guy, a young, as a dude doing impersonations, and then he um, he showed him his car, which was like uh, this old whatever it is. I, I'm, not, I'm not a car dude, so I can't really. Yeah. Remember. But, but he had his friend had done these etchings of um, Farrah Fawcett on one side and some, another sort of famous actress on the other side, and they were they were fine as well. <laughs> but he was really excited about them. And then yeah, so Trent thought, oh, okay, that's fine. Later on, he got a letter from this guy saying, hey, I'm organising a talent quest. Do you want to come down and? And and, right, film yeah. it. and he was like, this is going to be car crash gold. Yeah. And, and so he went down to film it. Anyway, he makes a short film, um, and it, it is as car crash as you can imagine. Small town, mm. um, Utah, um, with people putting on a talent quest who really probably wouldn't yeah, <laughs> that they might get featured in the in you know the first stage of a, of a, like an American Idol or something like that. Yeah, where, yeah. where you're looking at all the people who are crashing and burning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and this guy um, headlines in his drag act as Olivia Newton-John, um, singing "Please Don't Keep Me Waiting," and then for whatever reason, Trent Harris years later or a couple of years later decides that this footage that he's got, um, he's going to remake it as a kind of short. Well, he remakes it almost word for word, but puts little twists and emphases on it with a very young Sean Penn, who has subsequently sort of withheld his permission to have it out there uh, right. on, on a broad scale because he he's doesn't want a lot of this. He, like, I think he kept it off his IMDb credit for a while and stuff like that. And then he then remakes it again a few more years. He, he directed The Last Face. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a few more years later, he, he, um, he, um, Trent Harris remade the same story again, but um, made a proper short of it, bookended it, and made it a story about a young guy who's a cross-dresser and he sort of feels stifled in, in the small town he's from and he uses the talent quest as a way to kind of come out and then right. at the end of the film sort of drives off into the sunset sort of thing of saying, screw you, yeah. town who's hassling me, I'm going to go out into a, a bigger world and who's has space for me. Yeah, and so... I'd and that the, one's with Crispin Glover, right? Yeah, and that yeah. one so, stars yeah. Crispin Glover. And, that's, um, and it's just a fascinating look at what you can do with... Re- with a real life piece of footage and it, mm. and it, and it, it's a real kind of look at how uh, the media can like him as a camera person had come down and was looking at something to kind of 
this will be funny from yeah. someone who was very um who was very um sincere about uh, you know just wanting to be on camera and and not necessarily thinking I'm going to be in something and everyone's going to be laughing at me in my town, but then as a filmmaker uh, like looking at you and and um looking at how the how we as an audience have this sort of voyeuristic streak and how we like to look and laugh um and then there's a lot of a lot of shots in the very final thing of um the camera looking back at the audience all kind of looking either laughing or, right, or yeah. in shock um and so there's this real kind of treatment of the idea of people wanting two minutes of fame how the media twists can twist things to their to something that suits them because as he, as he kind of takes this original story and puts a twist on it to make it a, a, a transgender kind of story yeah um which it was wasn't necessarily and then looking at the audience and how we sort of feed this machine of wanting sensationalist kind of things and how we yeah. we act as voyeurs and yeah it's a fascinating piece and again it's, it's not a very well-known piece and it's not like super high production values yeah. but um i just it's something that stuck with me super hard and so i just i like I said, like I probably said before, I tracked down. There was no DVD coming out, and probably because of the problems with music licensing, um, with Olivia Newton-John's song and with um, Sean Penn. Yeah. And so eventually, I, I got hold of Trent Harris via email um, and said, "Hey, man, has this film ever come out? Because I'm yeah. looking for it." And that was about 2006, I think. And he said, "No, but I've got a video screener here if you want for a festival circuit." And, and I said, "I don't have a working VHS player, but send it to me." And he said, "Oh, give me a." Give me a couple of weeks and I'll make you a DVD. Wow. So um, I think I got the first DVD copy. And now he sells a DVD. Oh, can you buy it from it? On, okay. on his website. You oh, can, that's you great. Okay. Because yeah. I, I thought it, we were taunting everybody with a film they could never watch. No. So. Um, 30 bucks or something or 20 bucks. Yeah. yeah. So, which I, I've seen your yeah. copy once. Yeah. And it's it's definitely a really yeah. one of a kind film. And, yeah. And, um, that, and that, that, yeah, that and I'd just love like, to give it whoa. another look because as you suggest, there's so much, um, so many different kind of pathways yeah. into it and things yeah. you can get out of it from, and certainly I have, I've far from exhausting it all on a single viewing. And eventually he, um, he lost contact with the young guy, but eventually he tracked it down. So he put mm. these three pieces together in around about 2000 and then took them around a few festivals, but he tracked down the, the original Beaver Kid, um, a guy called, yeah. um, whose handle was Grooving Gary. So that yeah. was his handle on his um, thing, but I think his actual real name was, um, Richard Griffiths, right? I think, um, and um, he, yeah, and so he he was able to come, I think, to Sundance or something like that, South Pacific, one of those festivals, and to watch to watch it thing, and and he actually really enjoyed it. Um, cool, yeah, yeah. So that was that was that was a big thing for me and my festival experience. And every year, yeah. I, I look at the festival program, hoping to find another thing like that. How often do you find them? And every kind of four years, maybe something turns up. Like, but I was really lucky yeah. the following year. The American astronaut came out, and for me, we were like, "Hey, it's it's two thousand and one to be the trilogy." <laughs> right. <laughs> it's interesting that kind of notion of chasing the high in a way. I think. Yeah, and, yeah. And rec- so I think I've started to reconcile myself. Like just to go back to movie marathon briefly. You know, there were. Yeah. Um, and I I could have done a whole twelve just from various movie marathons, marathons and yeah. I don't have any. But um, there is those certain films that you know. Yeah. To talk, going back to years we can talk about, like when Holy Mountain first screened or Fight for Your Life, mm. um, and you're just like nailed to your seat and, and everything just kind of yeah. shifts inside your brain. Um, and the thing is, the more you see, the less you know <laughs> yeah. chance you're going to have for those moments. And yeah. I reconcile myself to, you know, at Film Festival now, you know, also because we're just, you know, so much more well-informed about yeah. what's coming. There's, yeah. there's much, and, and there's so much that's playing that you kind of have to 
make informed decisions about yeah. what you see, but as soon as you make informed decisions, yeah, there's, then there's not as much room for a surprise. Yeah, yeah it's to some degree it's going to be pre-processed, and yeah. even if you, yeah, so you do your best. So my number eight is actually about a DVD that somebody sent me as well over the internet, um, which is the first and last uh, point of comparison with Night of the Living Dead. Uh, <laughs> and and this film sort of hits two touchstones for me because... So right around the time I moved to Portland was sort of the time I really got into internet cinephilia. So what year was um, that? That was, that was 1998. Okay, yeah. So uh, I wound up... Um, and what happened is I didn't even know people talked about movies on the internet. Oh, yeah. um, and then I um, was really intrigued by the fact that Kevin Smith had a website with a discussion board on it oh, and yeah. so i went there and um at the time i was still like quite interested in what he was doing and i'd yeah. seen him introduce chasing amy and i yeah. loved clerks i don't even think i bothered with mall rats at the time um yeah and again it is kind of like somebody who's you know if you even if you don't know how to make films if you see clerks you think that's a really achievable film yeah, yeah you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looked like it was shot on postage stamps yeah. and, you know <laughs> like the smell of an oily rag and so he had a spinoff board for people just to talk movies called Film 411. Oh, yeah. And so I started meeting people. I went over there. More than that, I never really posted on the View Askew board. Yeah. Um, and then one day this guy, Todd Harbour, um, more or less poached me from Film 411 and said, I mean, I didn't leave it, but he's like, hey, you should come check out Mobius Home Video Forum. And I didn't really know anything about the people on there but it you know it turned out there were people like tim lucas who edited video watchdog don may jr who ran synapse yeah. uh dvd and um so yeah and richard harlan smith was a guy who was writing lots of smart stuff both for video watchdog elsewhere on the web um, a lot of names and in fact aunt timpson and aaron yap oh, um, okay. i first originally interacted with through there both new zealand cinephile yeah. i mean aunt timpson more famously but aaron yeah. yap also writes has written heaps over the years for yeah. flicks and uh, other people and was, you know, big at, in, heavily involved with Fatso for yeah. its duration. Rest in peace, Fatso. Yes, I that's, that's the uh, first cork pull because we've got to pour one out for Fatso. So it turns out Mobius Home Video Forum, though, um, as you might have guessed from some of those people, mm. had this really heavy, like, it was like art house world general, sci-fi, horror... European horror, yeah. Asian cult <laughs> cinema, and that's not how most people break down the world of yeah, cinema, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know? It's like, here's the bit with, you know, <laughs> like, Tommy Boy persona, and, you know, yeah, anyway. Um, but, uh, and so that was, as somebody who didn't really have an affinity for horror, who had, you know, mm. had Poltergeist, I think I said it the last, uh, the previous uh, episode before the movie marathon, you know, Poltergeist traumatized me at a young age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hated horror. I stayed away from it for ages. So I, and I had a real chip on my shoulder as somebody who was embracing this idea of good cinema. I mean, you yeah. go to Sight and Sword, it sounds top 100. You don't see a lot of horror there. No. And the popular image of horror is, you know, there's the, the Jasons and the Freddies and the, yeah. you know, tits and slash. And, mm. and so it's like, so, you know, oh, what can a horror film say about the world? And um, uh, so I mostly hung out on the Art House World General Board and talked a lot there and kind of clicked into the other ones every once in a while. And they'd be like, talk about Folky or Mario Bava or Dario yeah, Argento yeah. or, yeah. you know, John Carpenter. And I'd just be like, yeah, but, you know, you got, you guys are just making elaborate excuses for these films that aren't really good, maybe. I don't know, but I, I know enough that I'm not going to talk about it yet. And then one day, one of the onboard regulars, a guy whose handle was Mac, who is, I've never been able to track down as long since um, vanished from 
circulation said, hey, I just um, bought the Night of the Living Dead DVD, but it turns out it's just a direct port of the Laserdisc. All right. Would you like it? Okay, sure. Um, so I get Night of the Living Dead in the mail a couple days later, and it's, uh, I think I put it in that week um, with kind of just expecting not a whole lot. And mm. um, Night of the Living Dead uh, has a couple surprises in it, a lot of surprises, but um, it just ends with this really, and I feel like I've talked about this on before, so I won't belabor it, but it's just this gut punch of an ending mm. that elevates it from just straight up horror, which already, like, you know, is still it was still a very effective version of that, and it's still within its budget and stuff, taking it quite mm. seriously and, you know, shot quite well, um, you know, very striking black and white, very strong performance from Dwayne Jones mm. as the lead, and it's like, okay, well, there's there's something I kind of need to take seriously here. And then you get to that ending, and you're like, oh my god. And that's the moment where it's like, I've got to take this stuff seriously if I take film seriously. Mm. And yeah. so, and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to check out this Mario Bava guy, Kill Baby Kill, and mm. go run that. I'm like, holy crap, you know, yeah. this sort of, <laughs> you know, he uses the zoom lens the way Nicholas Rogue does. You know, mm. I'm, I go see uh, Suspiria and Texas Chainsaw Massacre when they come to the local theater and and it's this kind of probing ground that for ages i'm trying to work out okay what's the what's the actual works of merit yeah. and then what's the you know just, just pop, real yeah. slight you know because obviously within this um hot house of horror fandom mm. you have people who are like very serious about film and would rate persona but would also rate that and you have mm. people who's like top 10 films of all time are like oh yeah there's guinea pig you know like yeah. these japanese like kind of crazy violence i'm not mm. that sounded like i was trying to pass japanese film i'm not at all obviously that and that also gets into this whole sort of world of genre that then propelled a lot of the people that i've met in new zealand mm. and um that share those interests and so that's such a key cornerstone film that if i just said yeah, you know, yeah. I, and I would, I seriously would not have watched it if it didn't like show up at my house, postage paid, <laughs> and I was like, okay, if somebody's somebody that I really, you know, have shared, you know, twenty or thirty posts with on a forum is going to send this to me, yeah, I'll give it a look. Yeah. Mm. Oh, nice. Yeah, I must. I'm similar in a similar camp with, like, having been freaked out by horror, yeah, seventies horror, when I was young, and then I didn't find eighties horror that scary like you know the the Freddy's Jason's all yeah. that kind of stuff just I, it just seemed over the top to me and and that was just not, nothing I was particularly interested in but mm. now I sort of try and make myself watch horrors that people have like some of the older cool stuff but also right. some of the newer stuff that people are saying oh actually this is worth looking yeah. at so when I heard about you know Ty West's stuff I started House of the Devil and I don't always make the best choice about when I watch those things <laughs> by myself, starting at 1 a.m. <laughs> well, the good thing is if you have a code brown at home, it's only around the corner. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to go to sleep after you've just sat through something like that, <laughs> and you're not Touché. a big horror fan. Yeah, yeah. You're suddenly like, I need to watch something else, but it's three o'clock, and I have to go to work tomorrow. Oh. Oh. Well, and, okay. So my next, um, my next pick um, is. Uh, I guess the, my expansion into the kind of the classics of art house was some of mm. the classics of art house. So my Pather Panchali kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I never had a. Th- I, I don't think that I watched a lot of overseas film, but I never, I've never had an issue with subtitles. Right. Or, and I've, I've, I'm not sure what it is, but reading subtitles has never bothered me. It's the kind of thing that I start doing it, and then I, within minutes, I'm not 
aware that I'm doing it and I'm not aware that it's sort of taking my attention from the picture. It's a really lucky thing to have and I, I, I've only sort of belatedly been able to accept what a problem it is for people because I remember mm. like when I was first getting into cinema and mm. I tried to get people at my work to go and they're like, oh, who wants to read a movie? And yeah. I'm like, are you nuts? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. Yeah. It is one or the other, yeah. Because I remember talking to David Larson again about when we talked mm. about um, Sierra Nevada which is like text heavy like like it's yeah. dialogue 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 a Romanian film mm. and he said he was so tired coming out of it he said it was a great film but he said it was like reading a novel um, yeah. <laughs> because there was so much dialogue and I just I didn't even tw- I was like oh yeah I guess mm. I didn't even notice you know I found it such a vigorating kind of drama and kind of yeah you're just kind of if you're just yeah. used to that multitasking yeah. or whatever yeah and um, that's how your eyes work yeah. but this is one of the first ones um, I, I it was in 2001 there, there was a, a Robert Bresson retro playing at um, the Lido and Melissa had found uh, she was studying some French or had studied yeah. some French and she found this brochure for it somewhere I don't know and she said oh we should go and see some of this and apparently this guy is really good and I was, yeah. and I was like oh, okay I, I don't know who this guy is but it sounds good some French film okay and that just that whole we I think we saw seven of his films in thirty five mil, right? Um, wow! Oh my god! Fucking hell! And it was so. And they were all restored prints, or was it just kind of random stuff that was floating around? Uh, or... probably uh, some yeah. of it might have been restored, and some of it yeah. might have been. Okay. But it was, it was just like a whole different style of filmmaking. Mm. Like he's so spare. His use of um, music is very con- and digest sound is very very controlled. And his whole kind of flattening of performance um, and using yeah. what he calls, subsequently I learned, calls models rather than actors. Yes. Particularly in his, as he went on later on, he developed a theory of what he calls cinematography because he reacted strongly to um, the early days of cinema, like the big kind of song and dance routine films, yeah. as being basically what he called photograph theatre, like taking a, another art form and applying it to this new mm. art form, but recorded. And he said, no, cinema is art in and of itself and we need to learn what cinema is and he, he very much believed that um, the film is something that you shoot and it's alive and then, then it's mm. dead after that but then it comes alive again in the edit where mm. we find your um, place of organising these images in a way that breathes life into them um, which I thought was fantastic kind of theory of how yeah. cinema works and what it sh- is and should be um, but yeah so the the film that um, that hammered me the most and, and it's to this day it sits in my mind is the most harrowing film I've seen the thing was Oh Hazard Balthazar mm. which is the st- if you don't know it, it's a story of uh, it's actually told it's a story of a bunch of people but it's told from the focal point is this donkey Balthazar um, who transfers ownership to various people throughout the film and it's about poverty and people mistreating animals and people mistreating each other and this sort of cycle that just goes down and down and down mm. and there are moments of beauty and as Rob Bresson's big on what he calls moments of grace within a yeah. film where you just have a, just a moment where someone finds joy and release from the from the drudge of the of their life yeah. um, in these moments and yeah it was just beautiful harrowing yeah. And so affecting. Yeah. Well, I can understand why you picked that instead of a pick me up like Mouchette. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I didn't see Mouchette there. I've seen it. Oh, okay. I've got a copy of it. But um, no, the ones we did see were um, uh, we saw Country Priest. Uh, no, I didn't see that one. I think uh, that was the first one I saw. Okay, we saw Man Escaped, Man Escaped, Pickpocket, Ohazar, Balthazar, uh, Lancelot du Lac. We saw his last one, La Jean. But yeah, it's a fantastic film, and Robert Bresson remains one of my favourite classic filmmakers. One of the fathers of modern cinema, but except yeah. that 
his style is so idiosyncratic and it's still so apart from other filmmakers that I've seen. And there are some sort of European filmmakers I've seen sort of go into that mode. Like you kind of, you kind of think a little bit of some of the um, the Dardenne's work being along those lines, um, like spare use of sounds. But they, I mean, they got you know, the handheld thing for a while. But but mm. n- no one has quite does things quite like Bresson does them. Mm. Yeah. I guess um, just the other right before I quit Twitter this morning, although I'll probably be back, <laughs> but. Um, there was a great exchange between Victor Morden and Michael Sosinski, who are two really smart cinephiles that yeah. anyone on Twitter should follow, even if Victor is somewhat like as, about as far right wing as you get. About the Amer directors, uh, Katet and Forzani's new film, yeah. Let the Corpses Tan. Yeah. And um, one of the things that they said about it is, it, um, is like that it's actually kind of like, um, and I can't remember who said what, but something like, it's not so much somebody trying to be Leone, mm. so much as being, um, like, if Leone were here right now, yeah. what would he yeah. do? And and it's um, something I think a lot of people, when they fall under the prey of influence, they kind of make things that look like it, instead mm. of finding out, what is the thing about it? What is the animating yeah. energy? And... You know, building from the inside out yeah. of like, how do I you know, yeah, that? yeah. How do, how does this? Instead of saying, "Oh, Brisson uses these shots and these actors," it's like, "Ah, oh, well, obviously, you know, he obviously there's no shortage of Brisson carrying a lot of methodology mm. and writing about it." But also, it's like, what is it about these films that really hits with me? And instead of being like, "This is what Brisson would do," it's like mm. that. There's a great um, Satyajit Ray quote about that actually that mm. I read early on because he worked on. Um, Jean Renoir's uh, The River as a lead up to making his own film because, you know, there were no real models for art house filmmaking in Mm. India when he made Pather Panchali. And so, and it was like, actually, you know, you've got to um, figure out a way to not like do what your idols would do, no matter how much you love it, but Mm. do what's true to you at this moment in time. And that's why somebody who sets out to make a Robert Brisson film in 2017 already has their back in it. Because Robert, yeah, I mean, even if you just look at the distance from uh, Alhazard Balthazar to uh, Largent, you yeah. know, there is a there is a lot of significant changes there that can't be overlooked. And mm. if he was here 35 years later, he wouldn't be... I mean, you look at what Agnes Varda's films look like yeah. over that time, or Godard, or somebody yeah. who had a chance to live with that, and how they've moved and mm. progressed and changed, and that's what that filmmaker is ultimately all about, not the formal yeah. handcuffs that clip you to that time and place. And because and because they're um, very much in control of their production process, and they're, um, they're very particular about funding, he's not... It's not like some you know modern um, filmmakers or directors who have you know got hundreds of titles. I think of um, Kashimik. Um, yeah, yeah. Who's you know who's been involved with so many films? It's unbelievable. Sure, yeah. On the other end, but like Breton, you know, maybe what twelve to fourteen films, maybe in his entire career, something like that. Yeah, that started in like the late twenties, I think, early thirties, and then went right through to the eighties. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's insane. Oh, um, Trial of Joan of Arc. Oh, that's the one. Yeah, yep. I still haven't seen that one actually. Ah. So, yeah. I, I recently uh, this year I picked up a copy. I read it a long time ago. Um, has um, Rob Brisson wrote a little book called Notes on Cinematography? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, um, that. and it was re-released a year or so ago, maybe a couple of years ago, um, by the New York Review of Books. I think. Um, yeah. Did you get that Brisson interviews book as well? With um, that or no? No, no. Okay. I just got that. Uh, um, Melissa got me a copy for um, Christmas, I think, or possibly birthday. Mm. Um, and. So been slowly rereading it and there's this really funny part where he kind of 
kind of burns Dreyer's um, Joan of Arc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carl Dreyer, Passion of Joan of Arc. It's one of the top ten films of all time. You know, it's just like, but, but a bit of a poser. <laughs> oh, my God. That was pretty funny. Mm. Anyway, so what's your... Uh... Uh, mine's... I'm saying also, even though I'm advancing forward, my number nine is also by a Frenchman, um, and it's Chris Marker, a mm. letter from Siberia. Now, this is sort of at the tail end of my Portland time and is another internet cinephilia What's story. What's letter from? Letter from Siberia. Oh, yeah. So it's one of his more obscure ones. Yeah. It's not one of the... I mean, I saw Sans Soleil and I saw La Jetée, and for yeah. a long time, those were the only two Chris Marker films you could see because yeah. there was a VHS of, I think, those that floated around, and yeah. then it was just like, other than that, you're on your own, mm-hmm. so... And then I, uh, somebody on some internet forum, I, and I suspect it was the same internet forum, yeah. where I met the editing teacher at South Seas who oh, um, convinced yeah, yeah. me to come to this film school in New Zealand. Uh, somehow I wound up convincing him to send me a VHS copy of a few couple films that he had, including a letter from Siberia. Oh. And um, so around this time, I probably, I've made a short film of my own. I've been playing with film stuff for a little bit. I've been writing some screenplays. I had written a couple feature screenplays. And I was sort of finishing that company that I'd started and getting out of that and not really sure what the hell I was going to do. But knowing that I was going to finally commit to this long gestating jump into working in film that I'd been thinking about way the fuck back with trust, you know, like last podcast. And... um, and so a letter from Siberia shows up in my letterbox, um, which I still don't even think is available on American Blu-ray, but there okay. was a recent um, Soda Pictures put out this Chris Marker collection that oh, okay. has like yep. 10 films on and letters from Siberia is one, one of them. them. Right. So I know it's visible there at least. And um, the whole thing's in a very Marker kind of style written in this um, voiceover with yeah. accompanying images from a trip to Siberia and is kind of... Um, you know, and I will freely admit that if you're not in the mood for it, it's a bit ponderous and something. Yeah. And it's really less about the film than about a specific sequence that just knocked me off the couch, which is that um, he take plays literally the same set of images three times in a row. Right. And each time, and it's, it's set images of like um, uh, hay balers and stuff and all these this stuff going on in si- Siberia. And um, so the first time he writes the the essay against it as an anthem towards the incredible progress and glories of the socialist uh, movement in Russia. And then he plays the exact same set of images again and does it as a complete critique of the failure and how, you know, they were no good against capitalism, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then the third one, I forget exactly what he does, but it's some kind of more nuanced uh, or more personal descriptor. And it it just actually blew my head open as to what was really possible with image and sound and how everything interrelated, you know? And I, 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 it's, it's hard for me to even articulate now what it was like before I saw that, because I think we've seen things like that since then a lot more. And Mm -hmm. I think kind of like, um, there's certainly, I think there's a lot more ingrained cynicism as a viewer in 2017 than there would have been even in 2000 two or three or when I saw this mm-hmm. but um, I think that's when I'm like really the the power of what is in the edit to control and shape really came home to me and I make a living as an editor now and I think that some of that sense of that being 
the power of that comes from that moment uh, of watching that. So, yeah, and I'm really embarrassed that I don't remember the dude's name that sent it to me. Yeah. Um, I think I might have sent him a check, to be fair. So I like I don't feel totally terrible about it. It wasn't a complete gesture of goodwill, but still. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it's it's interesting these things. Like it's really there are there are people like that who you interact with, and I mean we've probably done the same thing at times. Yeah. Um, where they they encourage cinephilia in this way by people who yeah. are really interested in sort of seeing. I remember. Um, uh, well, like your friend John that you were talking about, or yeah, 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 my, my friend John, like Trent Harris, sending me mm, that thing. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, and I, th- I mean, that's part of the passion I have for doing stuff like this. Yeah. So is it kind of like, actually, if like, of all the bullshit I talk about, if like there's one straight thing that resonates with somebody that gives them a tenth of the pleasure of any of the films that I've mentioned, I'd feel like a happy person, yeah. you know. And especially yeah. if it's like. You know, I mean, I still feel like we probably know most of the people that listen to this by name, but if there's somebody <laughs> that, you know, doesn't, it's just like, oh, you know, I'm going to go check out what Dog Star Man's all about, even though I've never seen an avant-garde film. And it, like, they're like, that's what I've been missing in my life. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, so that, um, that's a, a really um, quite good segue into my next film, Chris Marker, because um, one of the things that Melissa and I did see at festival one year was um, Chris Marker did a documentary on the next filmmaker I'm going to feature, which is Andrei Tarkovsky, mm. um, called One Day in the Life of Andrei Asenovich, which is a takeoff of Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of um, Ivan Denisovich. Yes. Um, and so that's a documentary where he followed Tarkovsky, I think, on the set of The Sacrifice, his yes, last yes. film. Um, and it featured a lot of him, um, a lot of scenes from the film, also his second wife um, and his son, Andre Jr. It's a great film. Yeah, I, yeah, I, saw, a, I saw The Mirror, and then I kind of like, I don't get Tarkovsky, and yeah. I put it aside, and then I saw that at a the, festival, well, yeah. and then I went back and like, and yeah. and then it just happened, I came back from that, and there was a Tarkovsky retro, and yeah. I saw three or four films, I'm like, oh yeah, now I, elemental symbology, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The film that I'm going to um, have for Andre Tarkovsky, I saw... In, gosh, I think it was either it was two thousand five, maybe two thousand four, two thousand five, which was uh, Andre's uh, Ivan's childhood. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, not his first film. Like it's probably maybe fourth or something like that. Right, if I, Ivan, it's, it's after it's a, Steamroller and Violin. Oh, it's his first feature though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, one of his first feature, and and we Melissa and I were both studying Russian language at the time um, at Open Uni, and uh, one of our lecturers had arranged a screening of this. Don't think it was on. It could. Um, there's a possibility it was on VHS and you just put it through a projector. But I felt like it was like a, on some kind of film. Style. It I feel like, five. Right. I think they used to have sixteen mil collections yeah, 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 at the yeah, schools yeah. and they just like break so them I out. Think, Here's like the yeah, sixteen mil so print. So, yeah. So I think Whatever, it was like yeah. a sixteen mil print of Ivan's childhood, which yeah. was crazy. And so we're in this little lecture room, evening or it was like lunchtime or evening screening, but it was um, and and it was insane. And I was just like, oh my god, this is. So me. And so uh, Ivan's childhood story of a young boy who's from, you know, he's living a really impoverished life and he gets caught up in the throes of World War II um, and, you know, the Russian front and all that kind of thing. And and uh, and he travels with some soldiers for a while and he meets some other kids at one point, grabs some food from an apple tree. And there's all these kind of what come to be classic Tarkovsky motifs black stallion rearing up at one point and and eating apples in this apple orchard and there's apples which is another Tarkovsky mm-hmm. thing um and it's just a beautiful beautifully shot film the imagery like if you if you go and google um Ivan's childhood um yeah. and look at the google image search things that come up you'll just see these striking images uh, black and white images yeah. of, of um 
of a beach forest somewhere of people standing on a fallen tree branch um, and sort mm. of thing. Um, I mean, I, I've seen it a couple of times and it's just like all these images are just yeah. like, you know, it's like a Viewmaster in my yeah. head as you're talking of yeah. like every last and, image of these because they're so iconic. Yeah. Not even iconic, just indelible. Yeah. And, and, and I was obviously getting into Russian language and so I was getting into Russian literature at that point. Yeah. So both... He and Bresson as well um, used Dostoevsky as source material for some of the yeah. films. And, yeah, it's just beautifully poetic, highly political films, and a lot of the polis- politics I kind of have got some in retrospect, uh, but, you know, a lot of that stuff will wash, wash over yeah, you. But yeah. they're very rich films, um, very layered, thoughtful, can be a bit ponderous, um, but mm. the imagery is so beautiful. Like, um, we saw... Saw Stalker oh, in the yes, Civic, the rest- did, restoration yes. of Stalker uh, in the Civic at Film Festival. We didn't yeah. talk about that, did we? Because we didn't do a film yeah. festival podcast. And my yeah. goodness, it was it's it's his mm. films are just enveloping, visually yeah. enveloping. For me, it's 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 like there's plenty of things you could describe cinema, but for me, that's like true cinema where you're just you are overwhelmed by these images yeah. and the narrative. May you know you you might sort of there's shades of narrative in this stuff, but really is about the image and the way the image works and, and the reflections and, and philosophical sort of thought that goes into the way that he puts things together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's I, I do think that um, Ivan's childhood is like, if you're like, fuck, these guys keep talking about Tarkovsky, mm. but he sounds boring as shit, but maybe I should see one. Yeah. See Ivan's childhood. childhood. Yeah. If nothing else, it's 93 minutes yeah, yeah. and it makes sense. Yeah. So um, as opposed to The Mirror, which is like 93 minutes yeah. and doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, or as opposed to Andrei Rublev, which yeah. makes sense and is and 207 minutes. minutes. Yeah. So um, I think it's definitely like if you're going to yeah. um, approach Tarkovsky and you're coming yeah. from a place of conservatism, conservatism or something yeah. as a film viewer and you're yeah. not sure that's the amazing sort of gateway drug and so yeah. that you feel like that took you someplace that yeah. balthazar or something sort of beyond that i guess yeah obviously. well yeah. it just kind of added to that experience of um another way of looking at the world <laughs> right right and another way of expressing thoughts about life and, yeah. and humanity yeah thanks and um he and so that that also put me into russian cinema you know, big time. So I, I, not that I've seen lots and lots, but I've yeah, seen, yeah. I've seen my my fair share. But it is like your priority. You know, yeah, every yeah. Year, so it's like every year, if there's a Russian film yeah, playing, you yeah, go see yeah. it. Yeah. I always look to to watch at least one um, Eastern European, Russian, or you know, Ukrainian or whatever mm. cinema, because their cinema, their cinema to me is so rich and so they they. They delve so many themes, and um, often it's quite you know can be quite serious. But you know they they do some really good dry humor as well. And uh, last time, outskirts, we talked yes, about we outskirts, talked about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So so that was that was like a big broadening of that whole sort of art house foreign cinema thing for me. Yeah. Cool. Um, I don't have a segue to my number ten from that, oh, so yeah. we've broken our streak here. <laughs> Singing in the rain. Mm. So how do you get? So okay. Here's there's a couple reasons for this. One of it, which is, I was driving my wife to go off to camp this morning, mm. and um, that sounds really cryptic. She's just like a teacher and going to, <laughs> to chaperone the year ten camp for a couple days, and uh, she was like, "So are you going to mention the way way back, which is the first film we went on a date to, or, or the behind the candelabra, which she took me to at the." Mm. Um, 
Film at Festival. Film Festival yeah. prior to that, or and I'm like, no, but um, Singing in the Rain fits in that way because actually her um, blog is uh, Lena Lamont yeah, yeah. blogspot, who's the um, nemesis in uh, Singing in the Rain, and um, we love Singing in the Rain both so much that we included a sizable clip from it in our wedding yeah, montage, yeah. which I I literally mean the montage of things that we played at, at our wedding, wedding yeah. because <laughs> that's what happens when you get married to an editor is they kind of montage yeah, yeah. your wedding. And you get married uh, your own in wedding. a cinema. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that happened. But the, I mean, something that's kind of been really obvious throughout all of this is mm. this sort of deep level of kind of intellectual arrogance mm. about like the best and what constitutes the best in a certain level of maybe of like rigor or trying to find that way into it. And Singing in the Rain, of course, is not exactly a film that is undersung. I mean, we're not talking about like Point Break or something in terms of something that's surely pleasurable or, I mean, even Point Break has its fans, but you know, it doesn't turn up on Sun and Sound Top 100 No, no, no. Well, the Point Break remake, which I (laughs) (laughs) Erickson Core for life! (laughs) But I just had such an arrogance about musicals in general Mm. as being kind of a not-as-good art form. And I remember when I interviewed for college radio, they were Mm. like, well, do you you like all music? I'm like, well, not country, because country is bad. And it's like, because, and to be fair, like, if you were in Houston in 1991 and all you heard was Garth Brooks and commercial radio, you could be forgiven for not knowing about Hank Williams. Um, It was unbelievable. Like, New Zealand is obviously... Not big on country music generally. Um, mm. We used to have a station called Country FM, which my dad incidentally used to have on the radio <laughs> in the car at stereo all the time. We were driving mm. places, and it was weird um, for us. When I was in the uh, in the states in mm. Florida, and I was driving uh, between cities at one point, and um, in the late nineties, yeah, and. There were so many country stations. I <laughs> yeah, yeah. It. it was insane, right, was like, and they're all terrible. And people would joke, like, and I was like, and I thought, oh, you can't be. Okay, there must be like one or two. But honestly, it was like, no, the, no. There's like 15 stations. Dude, seven years in Texas. Wow. I'll also tell you about Tejano stations some other time. <laughs> but anyway, there's no country music and singing in the rain. Um, and so, like, I remember going to see it at, at, around the same time in Portland. And it might have even been before Letter from Siberia. So maybe oh, those yeah. were reversed. Like, I can't remember. But it was at Cinema 21. So that's the uh, early 2000s? Yeah, yeah. yeah. still early 2000s yeah. here. And it was literally like that kind of thing where you're like kind of, you've gone through all the things you want to see in the yeah. famous films you got to see list and you're like, do I really have to, you know, and I still haven't got to like Shoah or, you know, like yeah, yeah. it's like sometime I'll find nine hours to watch, you know, Holocaust or whatever you're <laughs> talking about their lives. Yeah. But for the most, it's just like, okay, I'll go see fucking Singing in the Rain. I'll say I've seen it. I've checked off and move it my life. Yeah. And I've, I've seen, uh, this song's stupid. You're yeah. singing in the rain. You're happy. Fuck off. Yeah. And, you know, you're not a real person making movies about sad shit like yeah. Robert Brisson and Tarkovsky. You don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> and I proceed to have every ounce of arrogance slapped out of me. Yeah. And I wasn't going to say this, but I've had some scotches, so I will say this. I think there are three types of people in the world. Yeah. There are people who love singing in the rain, there are people who haven't seen it, and there are assholes. <laughs> and I've, you know, maybe there's some special borderline cases, yeah, yeah. like, you know, maybe there was somebody who, like, wanted, 
Gene Kelly's sexually abused that we don't know about that we're going to find out. Likewise, <laughs> we get to December 31st to find out everyone we love is her- terrible. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there's somebody who's like, it is really kind of unfortunately retrograde in its treatment of women and da-da-da, and that's the only way they can look at films, and that's fine. But, I mean, it's just, it is joy. It is joy from start to finish, mm. and it's intelligent joy. It mm. is so, you know, dignity. Always dignity, you know. I mean, and the, and these these moments of brilliant writing and this whole and it's the potted history of. I mean, it's a film about introducing sound to cinema uh-huh. and about microphone placement. I, I, know, I know nothing about it. Have you not it. seen Singing in the Rain? Um, I think I did a long, long time ago. You're not leaving television. the house without my DVD. Okay. No, like it's it's it is literally. Okay, so the other category now that I've called it Jacob an asshole is people who, who saw it and weren't really paying attention. I mean, and did it really, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, fair. Totally, totally, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you saw it under uh, eleven, let's say, were you under eleven? <laughs> Maybe I'll get myself out of this hole yet. Um, oh God! But um, no, it is. It is, and so there's like you know, it's it's. It's a film that is often like yeah. talking about microphone placement and how that works and and staging of action oh, in a yeah. world where it's like silent film was quite a mm. expressive thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's brilliant and it is everything. You know, and, and, and I was thinking about it during our hiatus, the, mm. our long torturous oh, yeah, hiatus yeah, yeah. between these two podcasts. Yeah. In that, in relation to Ghostbusters, and again, oh, just yeah. that kind of. You know, yeah, it's great to go to the cinema and have a rigorous, harrowing mm. yeah. uh, experience. But, you know, sometimes you just want something yeah. to take you outside of your life yeah. and do so in an intelligent way that doesn't make you feel condescended to, that mm. still brings you joy and happiness and laughter and emotion and all of those things. Mm. And Singing in the Rain exists. Oh. Yeah. Cool. Well, to, to qualify my remark, that's um, <laughs> no, fine. You don't need to. I, like, I I didn't watch a lot of old classic yeah. Hollywood cinema. Well, yeah, as a young kid, that sure, just yeah. was whatever was in the VHS store on the new release sort of shelf when I was young. And so I saw a, a, an awful lot of eighties films. Terrible, terrible eighties films. Oh look, uh, I, I think I don't. I literally don't trust my own opinion yeah. of anything I saw under the age of like twenty five now. But um, but I did one thing they used to do a lot on television here, like on Sundays. I remember at high school they would always they would often play classic American films. So I think I probably did sing Singing in the Rain during one of those Sundays um, coming home from school, and then occasionally at my very early year of un- years of university, they would play classic Hollywood fear. At late at night, like mm. t- uh, before infomercials existed, they would play it like you know. 12, 1, 2, 3 in the morning. Um, and, and I ended up watching a bunch of stuff, including, like, yep. I saw heaps of Jimmy Stewart films um, and lots of sort of mm. black and white cinema at that stage. But it was all scattered because it was right, just yeah, what yeah. I was playing. And, sure, and yeah. I really had no sense of what it was, but I did enjoy... I pretty much enjoyed most of it. I liked watching yeah. them and I liked watching the old, um, you know, the Humphrey Bogart ones that would play and things like that without really any sense of how they fit into film. And, yeah, and to know, be fair, I had yeah. seen... Like, I'd seen other classic era films but yeah. I I think it was like you know I'd seen the things that were respectable like yeah. Citizen Kane or Casablanca or Maltese yeah. Falcon or th- and often like things that fit into like 
you know, oh, I'm going to watch Shot Corridor or something because, yeah. you know, it's Sam Fuller and he's yeah, edgy yeah. and it's in the Criterion Collection and yeah. stuff like that. So I think, I mean, it wasn't like I hadn't seen any yeah. classic Hollywood while I was busy watching obscure Lars von Trier <laughs> films. But, like, there was definitely, like, kind of musicals especially. Yeah, I was just like, yeah. and I do, I mean, I, honestly, I, I hate not, musicals music. I'm not I'm not a big fan of musicals on the whole. Like, I don't search them out, but I, I yeah. don't mind them. Like, I, there are certain people that sort of rate musicals like super highly mm. like, like people that rate had rated all kind of Pixar films yeah. super highly and I'm like sure. yeah I enjoyed that but it's not the best film in the world for me like you seem to be thinking it is um, and I found like that what do you have against Curry's 2 <laughs> <laughs> I have been, I have against some of those films that I have to watch with my kids <laughs> oh, <God>. yeah <laughs> But so that thing, the whole thing about being jealous about watching kid <laughs> films with kids, so like about the 80th time I'd watch, have to watch Frozen, I would like take that back in a heartbeat. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. Some of those things are, are pretty good, a better than better than I think. But they're not. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't go out of my way to watch musicals. Yeah. No, neither do I. And I mean, especially also like that era where I was coming up a lot, it's like people were raving about shit like Chicago. Oh, and, I hated Chicago. Yeah. And I, um, and I hated. Um, What's the Buzz Lemon one? Moulin Rouge. Moulin Fuck, Rouge. Yeah. God. What happens Jeez. if an art department throws up? You get Moulin Rouge. You oh. know. Oh, um, yeah, stuff man. Like that just yeah. does my head in. Um, mm. Mm. Anyway, my next one is also about um, just um, pure intelligent joy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, was a film that I actually caught in a movie marathon back in 2006, which was my second movie marathon, which was um, Troll 2. That was my second movie marathon as yeah, well. Yeah, we, we started the same year, right, 2005, yeah. but we didn't know each other at that point. Right, yeah. But this film, Troll 2, aside, oh. from, the fact that, aside from the fact that I'd heard people talk about it, but I hadn't had a chance to see it, and, I, and, I, and I'd like some trash, but I'd never got fully into it, yeah. and like these whole kind of like The Room and all these kind of the best, worst movies ever, and Troll 2... Such a fantastic, earnest car crash of a film by Claudio Fragrasso, who, oh. <laughs> who just sort of thinks of it as a great serious film. Yeah. Oh, it's, it was a beautiful thing watching that in 35mm at the Hollywood with a bunch of geeks. And, and then, I love and, Troll 2 so much. And then calling up... I'd seen George, it before, actually. I've um, seen it a second time, yeah. Um, what's George Hardy. George Hardy, um, who's a dentist. Yes, he is a dentist. Um, and we, we called him up, or Ant called him up, and got him on the phone, and he was so enthusiastic. It was like 2 a.m. or something. Where yeah. it was, oh, no, it was 2 a.m. We were, it was some kind of... It was 7 in the yeah, morning, morning or something on yeah. a Saturday. And, and, and we're like, the 300 was here watching you watching Troll 2 at, at yeah, yeah. 2 a.m. And he's like... Oh. And this is kind of before the real, like, kind yeah. of, like... Because Troll 2 is quite the call yeah, now, yeah. but in 2006, it was still... Uh, I just don't think there mm. were quite as many, Yeah, you know. And it was insane. It was so good. But the the kind of how this kind of carried on, aside from being a fantastic mm. cult, bad, fantastic movie, was it then came on in um, 2009, Michael Paul Stevenson, who was the child actor in Troll 2, the main mm. kid... Um, he made a he subsequently became a filmmaker. He made a documentary called Best Worst Movie, his first yeah. film, which was a documentary feature about the, the experience of making Troll Two, and and the experience of having lived through that film as your introduction to sort of public life as an actor, and <laughs> and how that experience was for people. And then so he got George Hardy on board. He got a whole bunch. Of, they tracked down people who were in the film. They got Claudio Fragrasso. Yeah. And it's it, actually one of the great documentaries. Yeah, it is a fa- not just filmmaking documentaries. Just and it's a fantastic, yeah. joyous 
fascinating yeah. study of of why people like terrible cinema. Yeah, and and it's like I think it's one of the keys I said earlier. The key and uh, to to bad cinema in my review mm. of the disaster, as I said, one of the keys in this kind of cinema is is people just being sincere, sincerely yeah. trying to make something good. Because the disaster artist, is, which is just out now, is about the, the room, room. Yeah. which it could is aqua. Yeah. Catastrophic in its own yeah. ways, uh, and, and so we then in two thousand nine that came, and yeah. we both saw it. I think, but that was yeah. that, it was that we went out to dinner. It was him, that experience yeah. that that we met, and this subsequently this podcast. Oh, that's exists. right. Yeah. So I see Troll Two as a direct line to us talking now, <laughs> because we, and it is I, best worst yeah. movie, best yeah. worst podcast, and so, we yeah. named the podcast after best worst movie. Yes. Um, and so yeah, we went from Troll Two. Then Best Worst Movie came along. We were at a Q&A that Ant had set up at the film festival in uh, the Winter Garden downstairs from the Yeah, Civic, right, um, yeah. Where um, he had Michael Paul Stevenson and he had um, the one of the producers, I think, from Winnebago Winne- 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 Man. Man. Yeah, Ben Steinbauer, I think. Yeah, and we yeah. were there in that Q&A with a few other people and there weren't heaps of people there, but um, afterwards yeah. everyone sort of dialed off and we stopped by to say hi to Ant and he said, oh, we're going to dinner with these guys if you want to come down That's before right. Winnebago Man's God, I forgot how all this went down, but yeah. 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 And so... Um, Doug and I, who had not met, ended up at a table together, um, realised that we were both marathon heads, um, and ended up at a table with Michael Paul Stevenson, and the poor guy was there with his current documentary, and we spent the entire time grilling him about specific details from Troll 2. (laughs) (laughs) I remember him telling me this amazing story, and he was like, yeah, so you know the keyboardist we went to saw Mm. the interview, and he's hysterical in the movie, Mm. because he says almost nothing, Mm. but um, he just plays little bits of the Mm. music and looks at the camera like... You know, isn't that impressive? Yeah. But um, it's like he shut the stuff, and they started to pack up the gear, and the yeah. um, woman got start suddenly start getting worried, and he's like, "Oh no, you can't leave before he does his thing." And they're like, "What's his thing?" And so he takes off his shoes, and he plays this amazing keyboard solo with his, his feet. feet. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. Troll 2 aside from yeah. just being a beautiful thing <laughs> and time. Troll 2 is unequivocally a beautiful thing yeah. that, as his best worst movie yeah. and you should track it down and best worst movie and yeah but so for me that was like a, a just a, a line from there to yeah, where we are now true. recording yeah. bringing you this podcast I, I, I didn't I had forgotten that was where we met actually yeah. and I mean I, I, I you know about my other Troll 2 connection of course which mm. is that yes. um, I went to LA and um my friends Andrew Todd and Johnny Hall were making Ghost Shark 2 Urban Jaws. Mm-hmm. And I I looked at my schedule and I said, holy crap, when I'm in L.A., there's a screening of a double feature of Troll 2 and Best Worst Movie. Mm. And Michael Paul Stevenson and George Hardy will be there. What if I brought my camera and like got a thing of them yelling, goddamn Ghost Shark, you know, yeah, against yeah. the thing. Two days later, I get a page and a half script and... He has written a scene for George Hardy, Juliet Danielle for The Room, yeah, yeah. and Alan Bach from, from Birdemic. Birdemic, yeah, that's right. And mm. I shot that, and then it was, and it was terrible, and it's it got deleted from Ghost Shark Two: Urban Jaws, which should tell you how terrible <laughs> it is. No slight against Andrew and Johnny, but just like you know, it was deliberately like, yeah, in, you know, Andrew is in particular is like as deep and passionate about this kind of cinema yeah. as it comes, and so. But then they wound up filming more scenes with Juliet because yeah. Juliet's a fantastic, actually, fan- she's quite a good actress, yeah, you know, yeah. and and might be fantastic if she gets the chance. But yeah. like, nobody could look good in the fucking room. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, and she actually, there's this thing that's come out recently of like actors of the room, where are they now? Which is a mm. funnier die thing. 
and it's pretty cringeworthy, but mm. um, Juliet's performance in it is actually fantastic, and I would go to the mat for it. Yeah. George is not good, but he is lovely. He is yeah. the loveliest he's man a, alive, yeah, is, and that becomes clear. Man. And Michael Paul Stevenson is lovely as well, yeah. and um, they deserve all the best things in the world. Yeah. Um, wow. I feel very... Um, yeah, I feel like I might have chosen the wrong film for the 11th film, but it is actually also a terrible movie, and it was... And I guess it's kind of like these things, like where do you draw the point of lineage, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I, I decided I'm going to take sort of the first... One of the first terrible movies yeah. that was kind of an underground thing. And I'd seen... I remember like some friends and I did a screening of Battlefield Earth before oh, this, right. where yeah, we'd yeah. done that intentionally. But the one that I'm thinking of is actually Leprechaun in Space. <laughs> because that's... that's you know, what, number, what number sequel is that? <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, I can do this. Uh, it is number four, because Lep in the Hood is number five. Um, and Lep, Lep in the Hood 2 is six, and then I don't oh, know where it gosh. goes. Yeah, and I still haven't seen the first three. I don't, and I don't have a lot to say about Leprechaun in Space. I mean, it's other than it, you know, it has the horror trope thing of like we're going to take this thing that was a movie thing and put it in space, like Jason X or whatever. Mm. And you know, it's like this small homicidal leprechaun who wants his, you know, gold and is mad at people. And um, it has like weirdly both Leprechaun in the Space, Leprechaun in Space, and Leprechaun in the Hood have this weird, not very lovely attitude towards um transvestitism and transgender that comes in really like randomly and harshly and like uh, but it's it is the first film that i saw that's like this is terrible and captivating and hilarious and also really terrible and captivating Mm -hmm. and um that that is um how i found my a lot of my people and Mm. that's how i was like you encourage to check out movie marathon and all yeah, these yeah. things and 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 digging in these disreputable corners of cinema that uh, without any sort of pretensions and it's it's really an interesting thing once you kind of completely just get yourself through these stages of it because there is this yeah. kind of laughing with it and then kind of like trying to the more you watch you're trying to kind of like triangulate what's going on here is this yeah People who are competent who are making a terrible film, people who are incompetent who are making the best film. Um, there's a film that I saw recently called The Brotherhood of Satan, and um, it's a really interesting film because it starts out seeming completely incompetent and like you're going to laugh at it. And as it go- starts going on, it's like, oh, they're not growing filmmakers, but it's an interesting concept. Mm. And actually, there's a couple good performers. And then you keep watching it, and there's suddenly some really interesting shots. And you're like, oh, this is actually... And and by the time you get to the end, it's like, actually, maybe this is a really good film with a really unsympathetic editor who fucked up the beginning. Beginning, yeah. Or something, but it's like, Mm. actually, like... I mean, that's that's the Mm. whole... I guess that's the whole idea of Best Worst Podcast, is that once you get this... I, I just find, like, almost the worst question you can a- ask me about a film is, like, is it good or bad? Yeah. Because I don't find that really interesting because, mm. you know, there's, I mean, there's a great thread on Twitter. Again, I won't ever see these things again, but, like, you know, talking about, like, did Mrs. Henderson Presents, does anyone actually, can anyone actually confirm that film still exists? Oh. It was nominated for an Academy Award. It had yeah, the yeah, yeah. adultery, but it's like... I've never heard it mentioned in the 10 years from the time it yeah. was nominated until now. It has no life. It has no yeah. thing. It's a quote-unquote good film. Awards film. And, yeah. and 
you know, there's all these... I mean, if you look back through old Academy Award nominees, there'll be films that are like, oh, yeah, that's one of the great films of all time. There'll be films like, I have never heard of that film. Yeah. And that's and conversely, there's these films, you know, so many of the horror films that I rejected, you know, mm-hmm. were considered bad films. And it's like, you know, to kind of misquote a bad... Uh, uh, to quote a, misquote a very great Mitch Hedberg joke... Perhaps the problem is not the quality of the film, but the way you perceive the quality of the film. Yeah. You know? um, and yeah, and and that's kind of like as a as a film viewer, that's where I'm at now. It's mm-hmm. like you know, just take the film for what it's trying to be, but also what you can see in it, and yeah. just kind of you know, it's like scrape all this other crap aside about what you're told are the great films or what's yeah. good or what's bad, and just like. You know, because at the end, it's a personal relationship. Yeah, and some of them have, like, for you know, moments of gold, which are yeah. which make the entire thing worthwhile. Sure, yeah. And I think there, there is a big thing about the sincere, uh. sincere sincerity and, and enthusiasm. And yeah. if someone can convey... Well, that's why it's all this Sharknado shit, yeah. and it's just pure crap. Yeah, it's, it's like a cynical attempt to capture... An audience. Claudio Fergasso believes, yeah. you know, Tommy Wiseau believes, believes yeah. you know, and that, and that belief is what is so a palpable, pure yeah. about something and that... And there's a palpable passion and belief, yeah, and, yeah. and belief that they're doing something, something yeah. worthy, and, and, and that comes through, and yeah. it's, it's like, you know, when I was talking about bad taste earlier, yeah. and you just sort of think, well, you know, Peter Jackson has subsequently made... You know, a number of um, highly accomplished films and has achieved a, a great deal in some of those. And, and, you know, some of them are just, you know, for for me and for for you probably and a lot of people yeah. are just kind of like, well, I, I prefer some of his older stuff. Yeah. Um, where the budget was lacking but the ambition was huge um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't quality material but there was just like a passion to do something lively and yeah. funny and uh, yeah and, and that sort of really comes through whereas you know the, you, you even get from him talking about his experience on The Hobbit uh, about how much of a grind it was mm. and it feels a bit like that in, in the finished product <laughs> yeah oh god those behind the scenes things where he looks like he's been defeated yeah mm. and that's yeah I mean that's um, personal filmmaking is a thing where you know it's like these that's, I guess that's the thing that I'm yeah. responding to is it goes beyond in good and bad and it's like you know is this a personal film or an impersonal film and that's yeah. what like we were, we were talking in the car the other day about Thor Ragnarok and it's yeah. like that's I mean to me that's what's more impressive about it than anything else is it feels like a type like of a film, film. Yeah. whereas when you see Captain America Civil War it's like I don't know what a Joe Russo film is Yeah. and I don't really know what a Joss Whedon film is other than it's a little quippy and maybe there's a quote-unquote strong female character, which means she punches somebody in the face, which yeah. um, is not the same as an interesting female character. And so, yeah, and I think that, like, uh, where I'm as a viewer, it's like you can get a lot of enjoyment out mm. of that. And that's not saying that, like, I'm more sophisticated or whatever. It's like I think... We just come into ourselves in terms of what we like and mm. what we don't like. And I don't like, at this point, so much looking at films that are just kind of bad and going, oh, isn't it funny that it's bad? Because mm. it's like, you know, anyone can do that. But it's like, this is really like some kind of, you know, window into this person's yeah. everything. And that's like with The Evil Within, which yeah. played at the film festival, oh, yeah. which wow. I kind of went, to, uh, to be honest, I went to it kind of thinking I was going to laugh yeah. at it. 
and yeah. that film does not let you laugh at it. And, no. I mean, there are fu- there are funny moments, but despite how often terrible it is, yeah. it is just so much more of a deep sadness of mm. this person who is really damaged and yeah. trying to express everything about their pain in life through film and mm. also doesn't happen to be a very good filmmaker. Yeah, so it's an extraordinary film. Anyway, what's your number 11? Uh, my number 11 is... Um... Not in the same vein at all. <laughs> um, it actually comes out of, um, as what I was talking about before, uh, the, it's, I, I think this is the last film I saw with my dad. Melissa was there as well, and it was probably a bit kind of gritty for her. Yeah. Now, this is um New Zealand film called Out of the Blue by Robert Sarkis um, yeah. from 2006. And, Great film, yeah. Um, and it's about the Adamoana massacre. Now, that, for those who don't know, in like the 1990s, uh, for, I mean, New Zealanders learn yeah. a lot about it, but there might be... One of my American friends listening, yeah. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so it, it like, happened, it's one of the only Liverpool, shootings in yeah, New Zealand, shooting, period. Shootings yeah. America, because we, we don't have a lot of guns available generally um, in New Zealand. And so uh, our chap, David Gray, who was quite mm. disturbed, but you know was like one of those quiet types who just sort of broke somehow yeah. and and went on a shooting spree with a bunch of rifles and, and ended up killing 13 people before um, he himself was shot by the police um, anti-terrorism squad. In a small community, uh, kind of a uh, beach community in the Aramana Peninsula down near Dunedin um, in the South Island. Yeah, so this was some years on from that. So th- that was early 90s, I think. Yeah. Um, and this was 2006 that um, Sarkis did the film. And he went and got permission from the community, like went and sort of um, asked the sub, uh, I think people that were involved, the families of the people who died and some of the people who survived to say, are you okay with us doing this? And sort of tried to be quite sensitive about the way that he made it, but it was also quite realistic. So it was quite a yeah. grim sort of thing. It was it was um, one of the... Carl Obama plays one of the main characters. His, it's, his, it's one of the great New Zealand films, yeah. I think. And, and certainly and of the... He's probably that, a New Zealand actor that a few people... Yeah. And, well, everyone knows him now yeah. between Star Trek and Thor yeah. Ragnarok yeah. and, you know, whatever else. Dread, yeah. I mean, famously, where he only, he only yeah. see his chin. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah, and so uh, he plays one of the one of the key sort of police members at that point. Yeah, and um, yeah, so that was a film we saw at the Paramount actually in Wellington. Thing of Paramount is a, is a kind of a, a well loved cinema in Wellington, which is um, has it closed yet? Yes. Yeah, which is has closed. Sadly, yeah. Sadly, yeah. So so that that film was a piece of New Zealand history that was done well. A, a great New Zealand film with some really good performances. It was gritty and dark and disturbing because of the subject matter um, so what's that like seeing with your dad though well i mean we lived down in Invercargill, um which is just south of dunedin mm. um, a little bit further south and so we sort of had and my cousins were from dunedin well, or rather had shifted down to dunedin about two and a half hours southwest right yeah 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 and so my cousins were in dunedin so we used to go mm. up there quite a bit and it was just one of those things where we were very aware of that having gone on. I was in Auckland by the time that had mm. happened, but, um, but yeah, seeing it with Dad was, um, like I said before, Dad started taking me and expanding my view of cinema yeah. when I was younger because he realised I was quite obsessive about film watching and that I was getting something mm. out of it that probably my brother wasn't or whatever, you know. Um, and so I had this connection with seeing films with Dad and I would always mm. say what he'd been seeing when we caught up. Um, and so that was it's just a real strong memory for me of seeing a great New Zealand yeah. film with my father. Um, I guess I realised that, of course, you wouldn't have any sense of occasion at the time because you mm. wouldn't think it would be your last. And technically, mm. you guys still may see... Yeah, we other... still may see something else. But mm. uh, he, he's moved to um, 
Actually, not far from... He's, he lived, now lives in a small community in Southland, a small town, sort of central Southland, north of Invercargill, which right. is like, really is like a one-street town. Right. So not a lot of cinema. Not, no. I, I not, not, not the I mean, streets of Inver- yeah, Invercargill yeah. or anything. It, 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 I mean, it goes to Invercargill for significant things, <laughs> um, that, which is about 80 k's drive. I think. Right, yeah. And yeah. why he moved down there, I have no idea. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's coming up in, at the, in February, I think end of January or February so hopefully um, we might go out and see something like that it's funny because I haven't really thought about that because I am I, um, you know I my dad lives in the um, states and as the you know my parents are still together and you know all that and um, I try to drag him out to a movie every time I'm back although oh, yeah. it didn't happen last time um, because you know he doesn't go with my mom yeah. but he like and there's stuff that you know mm-hmm. he likes that my mom wouldn't be interested in you know, I have really fond memories of taking him to, um, like, Lord of the Rings films and stuff oh, like yeah. that when I went back. I'm like, and, like, kind of deliberately waiting because I know he'd like them. Um, yeah. My wife and I saw the um, Gambler with him oh, okay. when um, I brought her there as my new, fresh new fiancé, the uh-huh. uh, Mark Wahlberg yeah, yep. remake. I actually quite like it. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's really underrated and never yeah. got a release here, which is a bit of a shame. But I think my favorite was taking my brother and my father to... Um, Taking. I mean, we all went together. Yeah. I'm sure shit, sure that I didn't drive because they never <laughs> let me drive because they're convinced that I'm in New Zealand and I'll just like go on the, road, the other side of the road and kill out. <laughs> they never thought I could drive anyway, which yeah. could be fair. But um, to Team America World Police, oh, and nice. um, which is a weird thing to take your family to. I mean, my family. I took my whole family to Bad Santa as well <laughs> um, because my parents introduced me to South Park. Oh, uh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. No, they. Um, I seriously came home for Christmas one year and they're like, have you seen Mr. Henke the Christmas Pooh? My mom was telling me about it. He's so funny. You watch Mr. Henke the Christmas Pooh. I told, I and showed, so we I watched the girls South Park of Hanky. Jesus fighting, you know, and, <laughs> and it's like, so yeah, so my parents introduced me to South Park, So which is not really actually like kind of where they're moral entertainment gauge lands normally and I, yeah, yeah. I, I I would be lying if I said they watch South Park every week mm. or you know have probably ever watched South Park since then or endorse their views but yeah, yeah. I mean we're of an age where our parents um I mean anyone's technically of an age so I've learned yeah. in life where you know your parents could pass away at any time but certainly yeah. um my parents are both in their 70s yeah and I'm here and you know I'll keep coming back as often as I can, but, you know, they've been here twice in 13 years, they're yeah. retired now, maybe they'll come back again, but yeah. who I mean, knows? I mean, it's, it's a long trip, and yeah. on older people, that's quite, it can be quite hard. Yeah, and they're in, my dad in particular, but they're both in okay shape, but, mm. you know, maybe I'm counting the number of times on, you know, my fingers and my toes, mm. but unless I'm really fortunate, I, I'm starting to realize it may not be more than that, and I may yeah. have to think of, like, you know, which and it doesn't even come to mind right now, I'd have to, like kind of sit down with Sarah and talk about, you know, well, what was the last time we were in Michigan and saw a film with Hmm. my parents, you know? Uh, And it might have been The Gambler, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit sobering. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your uh, final one? Well, it's also a New Zealand film. Um, And this is... It's that thing of, like, realizing suddenly you've got to these films that are all very important. Yeah. And then, like... There's a whole 13 years of my life, because I moved here in January 2004, and mm. I went to South Seas uh, in, in Auckland's North Shore, and I got my degree in editing, mm. and I managed to get work here and work as an editor, and I met my friends, and some of my friends I met from that, um, Alistair, Ty Sampson in particular, along with um, some other people they met around the way, we eventually decided to make a movie together, and I'm not trying to be self-aggrandizing, but realistically, Jake has to be yeah. the 12th movie because 
um, it is kind of this thing that hangs over so much of my time here yeah. in New Zealand, not just because yeah. it took so fucking long. <laughs> I mean, I started writing it in 2007. It came out in 2014. And also... Um, Longer than Margaret. <laughs> Actually, it might not have been as long oh, as Margaret. No. God, Margaret was 2000, and it came oh. out in 2009, I think. It was 2000. Yeah. Wow, I didn't realize it started that far back. I think. Uh, oh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I All I know is, like... yeah. Different reasons than, you know, there was not a lot of studio interference in our film. Um, but also, um, again, tying into my wife, when uh, we had the press screening, mm. uh, it was, sorry, it wasn't a press screening. Like, I was literally so down with the film and so fed up with it that we had arranged a cast and crew screening. Yeah. And about the day before, I was like, you know what? Why don't we just upload it to YouTube at the same time and tell the cast and crew that... It's, you know, it's going to be, it's available there. You can tell your friends, you've seen it, we've done this movie, goodbye. And, like, my color grader, Lana Cotton, basically, like, talked me down and, like, she was like, no, I think it's a good film and I think, you know, it deserves to be treated as a real film and not yeah. just this kind of, like, yeah. we hang out with some friends and, you know, we made a feature in so far as it's 90 minutes and enjoy mm. it. So we had this cast and crew screening, but one of the things that I'd done prior to that was invite a few critics, mm. thinking that if the critics liked it, that would create some sort of groundswell that might help get it into theaters. Mm. And that turned out that's exactly what happened, because yeah. David Larson saw David. it and really loved it. Dom Corey saw it and mm. wound up you know, being really supportive of it. I think I invited a third person I can't remember. And the fourth person is um, Sarah, Sarah Watt of the Sunday yeah. Star Times, who um, also really liked it and mm. who... Um, I should note at this point, I previously knew because she dated my flatmate. <laughs> she hates me bringing that up, but, you know, she probably hasn't listened to this episode. So anyway, Johnny yeah. Smith. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so this was like in 2008, I don't know, seven, mm. I don't know, like many, many mm. years prior and mm. didn't last for very long. She had just come back from London and working mm. at the BFI and... And then I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You worked at the British Film Institute. You know, wow, da, da, da. Yeah, yeah. She, she had been in legal publishing, and then she switched over to publishing at BFI oh, for yeah. a short-term fill-in. Anyway, so she comes to that screening, and then... Um, I was at the screening, too, and with Melissa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so that, were you the fourth? Oh, God. No, no, because I invited friends and stuff, yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. I don't think I invited you in a... Like, in a press... No, you no, know, no. Um, yeah, there were... I, I mean, I basically was like, so anyone that I was close reveal. friends with that I didn't think would have a chance to see it, I... It's you a know, great like, film. You should watch it. JakeTheMovie.com, $5. Yep. Yeah, and so uh, she really liked it. And then I, I said, hey, could you write a review? Somehow it came out the idea of her writing a review of it for Press Kit. Yep. So I asked her to, and she did. And that kind of got us the stuff to get us into getting a screening at the Academy and then at yeah. the Paramount. Oh, and great. We had decent runs in different ways at both of those. Yeah. The Academy was only a few screenings because they had this weird, like, we do our schedules once a month, and oh, we yeah. premiered in June, and then July was Film Festival, and then yeah. it was kind of too late to get more. But we And we played at the Paramount for seven weeks, but Graham Tuckett savaged us. So, uh, oh, really? He gave us a two-star review and basically called me a sexist and said I was ripping off Fight Club. Sorry, misogynist. Wow. Ironically, we're friends now on Facebook. Anyway... Yeah, no, I'm thankful that review isn't online, but yeah, it killed us in Wellington, but oh, um, thankfully the Paramount just kind of trust, kept us going, and it's like, we kind of kept getting a couple oh, of And maybe the, like, maybe the owners or the thing, projectionists at the Paramount liked it. The owner was super supportive of yeah. us, you know, and he's, um, 
a guy that you know a lot of people have had run-ins with and people mm. listening to this program I know have had run-ins with and I will not comment on yeah. his general overall quality as a human being other than to say <laughs> to me personally and to Jake as a film he was as supportive as you could hope for oh, great. Um, from an exhibitor yeah. and thank you and I'm sorry for all the other people who had less than positive experiences but mm. I mean, this whole kind of like this whole arc, like looking back at this from like sex lies and videotape and especially trust up to this was like building up to this idea that I had like very early on one day I will make a feature film. And Jake was that film. Mm. That's a that's a big ambition. And personally, I think you guys pulled it off really nicely thank you I mean, it obviously took a while and it was hard work yeah. and, um, oh, it's, I mean you know it's only like kind of now that I'm like you know it's the end of 2017 and it you know we finished it in 2013 it, yeah. and we released it properly yeah or as properly as we got in 2014 and it's yeah. only now that I'm kind of like able to even contemplate like the idea of what it might be like to make anything else of yeah. that you know remotely resembling that ambition again yeah. but um yeah, no, I was really, um, a lot of people said nice things about it. And at the time, I couldn't really quite absorb them because I yeah. could only see. I mean, when you make a film, um, oh, you can only anything. Ca- you can you a- analyze it to the point of death, really. And, yeah, and you yeah. see you see the, you see see the everything that's wrong with it. And you see all the compromises that you had to make. And all, Except and, for those people who have, who have just boundless self-confidence and they have no idea when they haven't done Did you say something job. about Troll 2? Or <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Then, and I think that's another thing that's maybe what's so compelling about these films. It's yeah. like, how amazing would it be to have that much self-confidence? Confidence. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, Jake is a fantastic film. You should definitely watch it. And it's the kind of film that I've... You just like it because of the name. No, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no there, is, there is that. There is that. You know what I mean? I actually, I, I'll, I'll just say this. I'll shut up. I was really um, humbled recently because um, an editor who I'm friends with who met me long after I made it and didn't know didn't even know about it for the first few months we were working together. And I mentioned it one day. And so I sent him a link to it. And um, a couple of weeks later, he texted me. He was like, oh, my God. And we went out for lunch. And he just, like, was raving about how much he liked it. And, mm. and it meant so much mm, mm. more. You know, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was re- really nice. And, I mean, it, it's um, it has its flaws. It's first film, whatever. You know, yeah. I, I, I made it. And maybe someday I'll make another film that's better. But for right now, that's the film I made. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that, at the very least, it deserves number 12 on a list yeah, of films yeah. that had an impact on my life for that reason. And um, yeah. if, if not, uh, list 12, top 12 films made well, by and you see, American and, and, expats and, in New Zealand or <laughs> about body swapping. Or, you know, and, and, and as you said, um, you know, the, the long game implication of that yeah. um, is that... You uh, are now in a relationship. Yeah, well, there, uh, well, and married. Yeah. yeah, I should also say just very quickly um, that for people who don't know what the fuck this Jake film is about, that it's this sort of blackish comedy about a guy who wakes up one day and discovers he he's, he's been, been replaced, replaced yeah. in the role of his life by an actor. Dead, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's the thing. And if you're curious, JakeTheMovie.com. There's a trailer there. Dot dot dot. I'm not. I didn't put it on to try to sell it. So yeah. anyway. Um, so did you make a feature that I haven't heard about that you're gonna? Yeah. Here? Yeah. So the feature like no. <laughs> um, n- no, I, I've got nowhere near making anything like a film. But my my last film is a film that 
was a strange viewing experience for me, and it's um, by a director that we've mentioned just before, um, Taika Waititi, um, was mm. his film Boy from 2010. Which you've written on quite eloquently at Lumiere before about your experience. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Lumiere Reader was a New Zealand film site that's amazing and now lamented in its passing and, and has proven irreplaceable because yeah. it hasn't been replaced. Yeah. Sorry, so, so, so Boy... boy was a strangely personal feeling experience for me. I, I, I watched it and I was kind of shell-shocked. I really enjoyed it, but I, yeah. uh, I, in a sense that it's a, it's a comedy in some ways, but it's a very kind of dark-edged comedy because yeah. it's about the life of these kids who are suffering from neglect and... Poverty. And poverty and... and um, Abandonment, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, so... so but it's Taika Waititi, and he's so sort of has that kind of crazy, slightly surreal silliness to a, um, to a lot of his films. And he did Hunt for the Wilder People, people as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, what we again? Do, I'm just what sort we're doing of the shadows. Yeah, Taika Waititi and I are, are about of an age, mm. and um, we both come from the east coast of New Zealand, a place called East Cape, um, which which is where Gisborne, which yeah, you mentioned Gisborne, earlier. yeah, Gisborne yeah. Is, is the place that I was born and I grew up, and I have a lot of relatives around that place and Fano. <laughs> connections and, and land around East Cape and it's where my father is from grew up in the Waiweka Gorge which is kind of between Gisborne and Apodakia if you know the area so watching, watching this film um, set on a marae or around a marae uh, on the East Cape um, yeah. and, and about uh, about a bunch of kids whose sort of father has been absent and he kind of comes back and they're mm. um, being raised I think by grandparents and stuff yeah it, it, it just it it hit me in a way that was unlike other probably would hit other people and and mm. other films because it felt like a lot of my life. I mean, minus the neglect, I've never been neglected. I've two wonderfully loving parents um, who looked after me, but I grew up on the east coast and um, and you would have been around people who had similar yeah, experiences yeah, there, right? Yeah, yeah, and in that time in the eighties, so it's sort of yeah. like set set around the time that Michael Jackson's Thriller and stuff is coming out. Mm, um, yeah. There's, there's, there's a, a marijuana subplot in it, which I, I have no connection with. Right, um, yeah. like we, um, but then, you know... Over You'll the notice back, the lack of toking that happens yeah. during our... Uh... Over the back fence from me was uh, like a, a family who were really good friends with one of the boys and Moses' um, son, um, eldest boy... Well, no, sorry, the boy about our age taught my brother how to play chess and we were good friends, but um, that was a mongrel mob family. Um, right, so yeah. like which is one of the big gangs in gangs New Zealand. In New Zealand. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of poverty. Um, I guess I, I don't ever sort of think of myself as being poor, but like being confronted with a lot of privilege, I realised that probably yeah. came from uh, what some people would think of as an underprivileged background. Parents often working three jobs. Yeah, that stuff. Um, but thing, there's parts of this film like where the kids are staying with their grandparent, grandmother and grandmother has to go to a tangi, which is a, a funeral yeah. uh, for Māori ceremony. Um, and so the kids get left in charge with by the oldest kid and this is stuff I grew up experiencing yeah. um, where we would stay places and sometimes the adults had to go and do things and it was the oldest kid who was in charge and there was food and you just did what you did I, I'm reminded um, of a conversation that we had after a screening in the Florida project recently which is mm. um, screened ages ago but is forthcoming in New yeah, Zealand yeah. yeah they just did a long lead about, yeah. um, which is also about kind of like kids left to their own devices yeah. and I remember you um, and uh, Kim. Kim coming out, and um, I guess we'll give names. <laughs> I don't know why I felt like I shouldn't spoil that. Yeah. Being like, yeah, that's that really hit home, even though yeah, it was yeah. 
it, the, you know, a Florida house, you know, Housing hotel, yeah, 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 hotel, technically, yeah, um, hotel, motel, um, just just being yeah. left your own devices as kids because you know both your parents have mm. to work and and you just you know, like during holidays I remember you know it's not like my parents had time off to hang around with the kids all the time it was like well, we need to pay bills and rent so they have to work and yeah and so we were just like hanging out with friends and you know the not spoiling anything but there's a, there's a a scene in the fire project where some stuff goes down and the kids accidentally end up seeing a fire and um and I. Did some of that shit as a kid. <laughs> um, but yeah. I was such a good kid. I, like, yeah. the extent to which I never got in trouble, and, like, even any minor infraction, like, I would just self flagellate. You know, yeah. I, I just, you know, it just blows my mind. It's like, I'm meeting people, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we get along, we're pretty much the same. And, like, we walk out of this film, it's like, oh, yeah, I set fire to it, but yeah, so did I. I'm like, what the fuck were you guys doing? <laughs> yeah. So and again, I come from Detroit, and yeah. so, like, you know, they set half the city on fire, fire every yeah. Halloween, so. Yeah. Go figure. So, so boy, it was like a film about a part of my life that I'm not—it's not that I'm not connected with it. I'm connected with, but like a lot of the people that I either work with or hang out with every day, mm. don't connect with their life. wasn't like that. They, you know, yeah. I'm I'm not working with a bunch of Maori people who grew up in the East Coast, and yeah. so for me that was like, wow, this is like a slice of my childhood um, that is really difficult to kind of explain to people or connect with people that yeah. just feels like my life at, a, at that age i really hope i mean we talked about thor ragnarok earlier and i mean obviously taika now is set up to make as many huge hollywood films as he wants but mm-hmm. i think um one of the amazing contributions that taika has made to this country in the films that he has made is presenting the texture of a real part of this country mm. in a non-once were warriors yeah, yeah. Um, entertaining palatable mm. but still honest i mean yeah. if you look at his last you know if you look at um i mean what we do in the shadows is is the flatting comedy or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know um hunt for the wilder people it's literally about sifts you yeah, know yeah, it's, yeah. i mean it is literally about like yeah, you know children being family. yeah children being um Put with um, foster family, foster families to try to survive, and all that kind of thing. Mm. And and boy is literally about you know this level of poverty, and mm. it's like and to tell those stories and be like, hey, we'll have some laughs, but also this is the fucking country we live in. It's not mm. Don Brash's yeah. like I don't want to hear Tereo on the yeah. radio, you know, or yeah. um, any of this. It's like this is this is where we are, and. Mm. You know, this is the reality of it. And I think, like, um, I mean, I'm new to this country, relatively speaking. I've been here 13 years, and I don't feel like I have the authority to speak for it in the way that Pakaha, who have lived there, here their mm. whole lives, much less mm. people who are actually Tangata Whenua, have. Um, but I do feel it's like, you know, there's a lot of reckoning that hasn't been done about who we are as a country Mm. and the more that we kind of do that reckoning and embrace that we're not you know this this white this we're not a british colony you know Mm. we're news we're aotearoa and Mm. we're this place with this huge pacifica community and this amazing you know um asian Mm. immigration and in one of the few countries in the world i know of with an unconquered indigenous population that has mm. some kind of 
admittedly very fucked, but still, you know, agreement mm. with the, with um, the you yeah, know, the, the, the colonizer mm. um, that is still proudly keeping its indigenous language alive. It's something to be, you know, I mean, they're it's just a, it's a really cool place on um, mm. levels that are well beyond oh, we have a female prime minister and it's where Lord of the Rings was shot, you know, and kind of like the internet. And Mm. it's a kind of weird thing about doing this podcast. It's like, obviously, you know, there's like a local population and there's an international population, you know, who are you speaking to? But Mm. yeah, so um, hopefully, I mean, I hope Taika has a few more boys. Yeah. In him, yeah. so, and, if, well, and, if, and if you had a terrible way to phrase, <laughs> if you if you if you had, <laughs> I don't think I had no boys anywhere near. If, 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 if you haven't had a chance to see boy, if you came to Taika by via world of people, people or shadows or then, Ragnarok, then, yeah, then give it a go for yeah. a film that is equally as humorous, has his flavour. But it tells you something about New Zealand, where he's from. Yeah, there's um, a story that I I might have mentioned to you before, but I was talking to somebody who told me that the reason Boy never connected in the states mm. is that nobody understood that it was a comedy. Oh, because it's about poor people and it's you yeah. know it's like neglectful dad and it's just like you know and it played it sometimes and everyone's like fuck this is depressing and it's like <laughs> I mean dude it literally you know there's yeah. uh, to me and there's so much what feels like overt comedy and I yeah. guess it's like testament to how long I've been here that it feels yeah, like yeah, it's the dry comedy, humor of... but it's still just that kind of dry humor that's yeah. like you know are we supp- yeah I think America like, like, I don't even dry deadpan stupidness yeah well there's <laughs> that too yeah ah oh, and yeah um crazy we'll but yeah it is um it, even yeah I mean even if you don't like boy I think it is worth if you have any interest in what New Zealand is, it's mm. worth looking at. And yeah. and that stayed in the seventies and eighties and so yeah. like, there's there's scenes in Boy where they have um, parties in the garage where they're sitting on old beer crates, so old oh, um, swapper wood, crates, wooden crates for yeah. you know seven fifty mil bottles of beer that used to be around mm. used to be the norm. That was my weekends with my family. We would go around to uncles and aunties or family friends' houses and, and they have a big party and a lot of swapper crates. Yep. Have a hangi. Um, in the back backyard. So a hangi is like a uh, Maori sort of traditional meal where you bury a lot of shit under the ground and, and, and you cook it's like it, an you, underground you, oven you, you, and like you set a fire, vegetables. You set a fire meat. and yeah. you set it, burn it down to the coals and you have stones on it that keep the heat and then you put um, your food on top of the stones um, and then cover it in earth and it infuses yeah. with the flavour of earth and smoke and yeah, it's Oh, it's fantastic. It's so beautiful. I've never had a proper hangi, oh, man. Yeah. I've had sort of half ass kind of like the takeaway stuff. But, um, yeah. And I had like, when I was in Fiji, I had one. But like, I've never like, yeah, it's just one of those like, yeah. it's not the same, you know? And so. Um, yeah, so we would do that and we would um, and we would be kids and hanging out and having lots of fun. And then eventually it'd get late and we'd get put to sleep in the back of the car. Yeah, and then, and then we'd go home later on. You know? Yeah, and and there's like there's like fifty thousand New Zealand short films about like kids waking up in the back of the car uh, while they're watching someone, you know, someone's mom get hit or something yeah. like that. Was that? But it was. I mean, do you watch those and be like, oh, that's what it was like, or it's like, is it just kind of cherry picking those terrible yeah, yeah, moments? Uh, I I don't. I was never surrounded by violence. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I, I feel like two that, cars one night captures that yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. thing in a lot yeah, yeah, yeah. So, more lot less kind of yeah, like and so two, two cars one night way. is a little short that Taika did that was yeah. was it Oscar nominated it was yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and actually boy kind of grew on top of them they have a scene in boy which is taken from two cars one night oh um, that's with right the kids yeah. at, the, at the bar um, but yeah that, that's the thing they go to a pub and yeah. the kids are left in the car and they just kind of hang out and talk to each other mm. because I mean 70s New Zealand or 80s New Zealand early 80s New Zealand was it wasn't seen as a sinister place where bad stuff was happening mm. in that respect and so it was fine for your kids to be in the car it's not like the windows were up you know the windows were down you would chat yeah. and hang out and play and um, and in, in that short they've got kids in separate cars yeah. who are kind of interacting and, and um, kind of having we just watched it again there. really recently and right. it really for the most part it really holds up there's yeah. some little weird speed effects yeah. that I'm like oh that seems a bit dated yeah. but like just the actual performances yeah. and the quality of the but moments yeah, and everything so that, that's great. my, my yeah. experience of some of that stuff was like yeah. being put to sleep in the car after a party but in the driveway you know of yeah. the house that we're at you know because we're going to be going home and you know instead of putting us in a bed in the house we might as well yeah. and there probably wasn't enough space because the party mm. was going on in the house as well yeah yeah so Boy, um, it was very much a film that I feel just connected with who I am in, in a way that many just wouldn't. And yeah. As an American coming to New Zealand, one thing I think about a lot is how much New Zealanders grew up, in a large part, on American yeah. movies. And as a, as a white male American, yeah. I mean, fuck, I never had a shortage of representation, you yeah, know? yeah. Uh, you know, regardless of what you might say about how you know a nerd is rendered in Revenge of the Nerds or Ghostbusters yeah. or you know a million other movies, you know, like the triangulation to that is much <laughs> smaller than you know being you know somebody growing up on the East Cape in mm. New Zealand and like trying to find a place for themselves that mm. makes sense. And it's one reason that kind of um, I suppose recent trends towards trying to increase representation and think about diverse storytelling and that mm. being something that's just part of our fabric and yeah. not something that is a special cause or a rare yeah. thing but just kind of part of how we tell stories yeah and that's another thing that i think is great about taika is that there is certainly there's no shortage of films that have been like we're going to tell you a story about what it's like to be you know a um victim of female circumcision in Africa who becomes mm. transgender and da 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 that's you know these, these dark and meaningful dramas yeah. um, that you know reach you know 50 people at film festivals who watch mm. them with furrowed brows and say yes that is very important you know but to make films like Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People that take you know what could be considered quite bleak subjects or at least like subjects that would be easy to render with a certain amount of mm. pathos and yeah. seriousness and, and treat them in a very crowd pleasing way and, and Boy was was it the highest grossing film in our country until Hunt for the Wilder People beat it? Yeah, I think so. In terms of yeah, a local local film or just film period? Uh, uh, I can't remember. It might have been film period. I think it's film period. Mm. Yeah, certainly local. Um, but I think it is film period. That and that's amazing. And that's mm. I, I, to me, I feel like that's the model. Hopefully, going forward, that you yeah. see film. This is sort of tangential, but I've been watching The Good Place on Netflix, mm. and um, it is very casually multi-ethnic to the point where my wife didn't even really think about it till I yeah. commented to her that of like you know the six leads you've got you know you have one Filipino guy um you have one African I mean I I, I don't you know I think mm. Filipino American African American mm. and Arabic English mm. guy but you know um and Arab woman and then um you know you, you have three Caucasians mm. but it's just like it's so naturally part of the show that there's mm. like, there's no, 
not only is there not any sense of compromise, you know, it's kind of like, well, it works so perfectly. Why would yeah. you do anything else? And yet mm-hmm. it was kind of like, it came out, I was excited a bit of reading, it came out deliberately of this idea of the um, creator, Mike Schur, who had done Parks and Rec before that, oh, yeah. be like, you know, we, we really need to get a multi-ethnic cast. Do you know the concept of The Good Place? Uh, I think you've talked about it, but I don't really... It's set that. in the afterlife is the short Oh, version. yes, yes. Two of the Caucasians are people who are kind of running the afterlife, Ted Danson. Oh, and, um, oh, I can't remember Darcy's last name, but uh, his assistant, Janet, is played by this Darcy woman who deserves every Emmy in the world. It's a, it's one of the best performances I've seen in my life. Um, and then Kirsten Bell is the oh, yeah. lead of one of the four four mains, and there's some side characters. Kristen Bell. Uh, Kristen, did I say, yeah, Kristen Bell, excuse yeah. me. So Kristen Bell is the oh, yeah, yeah. lead of um, these... Some quite big names. Yeah, but then and then the other three is uh, William Jackson Harper has a small role in Patterson, yeah. and then the uh, uh, Manny Jacinto and Jamil Jamil, I think, is... Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's terrific, and it's just like kind of... I feel like it's kind of this thing of 2017. We're totally tangential from the autobiophilmography yeah, yeah. now, but like that kind of like, actually, let's just kind of like throw out a lot of shit we know and say, what if we don't just start with the presumption that everybody has to be a white person that reflects the experience of a few executives in Hollywood yeah. and see what happens? And yeah. it's like, oh, you can still make amazing shit that's really fun and mm. interesting and accessible to people whose experiences don't resemble that at all. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that, and that, but also that speaks really deeply to the people whose experiences do resemble that in a way that yeah. they've never had people yeah. that speak to that before. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so our plan to have this be a little small half-hour adjunct to the previous <laughs> uh, podcast went about as uh, well as I thought it might, but um, that takes us to the end, and um, it'd be fun to do this with other people sometime yeah, to get yeah. theirs. So we'll see if we do that in some format and you know get in touch if you feel like that's something you want to talk about because mm. this recorder is pretty portable as are bottles of scotch yeah sweet but um who knows what will happen next but until next time this is doug let's take it that was best worst podcast cheers mm-hmm.